0: Thank you for being here. Those of you joining us online, thank you for joining us as well. Uh, Ginger, who did our announcements, had the most astute observation of the morning. Why did that boat have windshield wipers on it? Did you notice that? You know, like, were there bugs on the, on the window? I just... Well done, Ginger. I, I thought that was a great observation. Why? Why? So, well... um I uh, was reminded this week, as much of our culture was, um, of the kind of culture that you and I walk around in. And to be honest, it's, it's really not changed in thousands of years, but something took place this week that happens every single year, but because I'm a, I'm a football fan, I pay more attention, the NFL draft took place this week. And no, I'm not going to walk you through the NFL draft, but it was a reminder that we live in a culture that celebrates and holds up. Competency. We put people on pedestals. And, uh, y- you know, I was watching these guys that were just absolute superstars in college football get drafted into the NFL. But what struck me as interesting is that some of them we will never hear from again. A- and it just speaks to the high standards of the, of the society and the culture that we, that we walk in and we live in. Not just in football, but in every arena of life. But as you were, if, oftentimes, if you were to walk through the stories of a lot of, a lot of these football players, y- you'd hear something like in Little League, they really stood out. They were head and shoulders above everybody else. And then as the game sped up and they got older, they excelled at the next level, junior high and high school. And then if they were really good enough, if they were the best of the best, they, they went on to college and they excelled at the college level. And some of them will go on to excel even in the pros, in the NFL. And so as I thought back to their little league start and how something must have set them apart at the beginning, I couldn't help thinking of uh, our son started baseball this last week. And um, two years ago, he didn't play last year because of the pandemic, but he was in this t-ball league. And some of you have seen this picture and I thought maybe, maybe he's going to stand head and shoulders beyond everybody else. And so this is kind of grainy, but we're going to put a circle around him. That is Lincoln doing the Karate Kid crane pose the first time he took the field. So we're not hanging our hopes on, on anything. It could be a long road, all right? So isn't that how it goes for all of us? But it, it really does highlight something in our culture. We celebrate and we hold up and we put on a pedestal competency and ability and excellence. And, and that thing that we're just so surrounded by day after day after day as we, as we go to whether it's work or it's sports or at school or whatever your context is, is something that also follows us into the church. Now, here's why that matters. Because as we're going through this series Staying Power, we're really, we're really looking at Paul's second letter to the church at Corinth. But early on in that letter, Paul, after he talks about their their comfort in the midst of suffering and trials and affliction, he points something out that we all have to hear. And I remember the first time I heard this, it just blew my mind. I remember somebody read Paul's words from uh, Ephesians. And it said, they basically said, you have a ministry. You have a ministry. Did you know that? Now, if you're anything like me, the first time I heard that, I went... (laughs) No, No, like if the pastor knew me, they wouldn't say, they wouldn't say I have a ministry. And here's why. Because that thing that we bring in, that we walk in all week long, that holding up excellence and competency and ability and all that, when we bring that into the church, you know what we do? We say ministry is only for those who have the competency. Ministry is only for those that are the professionals. Ministry is only for select people. And for, and this is something we've inherited. And I'm not just talking about your parents and your grandparents. Ministry was, was largely understood by the church for over 1,600 years that when Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 4, God gave the church different people to equip and train for the work of ministry and to build up the body of Christ. It was largely understood that it was the professionals. But if you were to go through the Greek progression of all that, it actually, it's getting at something different. It's saying that those in the church equip all the saints. That's all of us. Are equipping them to go and do the work of ministry. If you were to just think, just just logically, when you go out of here, you're going to go to lunch with some people, maybe in this room, maybe not in this room. Or tomorrow you're going to go to work with people that are not currently in this room right now. And suddenly, that passage makes a lot more sense, doesn't it? Because the truth is, you are going to have a reach and an influence and some touch points with people that I may never meet. And so, what are we doing here when we gather on Sunday mornings? We're equipping to go do the work of ministry. We gather on Sunday, and we go. And then we go, and we do the work of ministry. Now, that's hard, isn't it? Because when you walk all week in, what can I do? What can I do? What have I not done? What have I failed at? What have I succeeded at? Then there's this thing that you tend to start to think that ministry is completely up to me and what I can do. The competency thing. So how does ministry look? What is ministry supposed to look like? And I would bring it back to Paul. We looked at a passage last week and Paul said to the church, he said, in my in the world, And in my relating with you, with the church, I have relied not on worldly wisdom, but on God's grace. Not on worldly wisdom, not on competency, not what it's up to me and my strength and what can I accomplish, but on God's grace. Now here's where I'm going with that. If you have a ministry, your life is either going to shout to people, what can I do? Or it's going to whisper, what has God done? Every single one of us, when we go out these doors, our lives are going to communicate. It's about what can I do or what has God done? One is worldly wisdom. One is God's grace. Maybe a better way to say it is your life is either going to communicate some really bad news and stop there. It's all about what you can do. And the hard part about that is you have some years of your life where you can really do it. But as we get older, as we get tired... As our hearts get broken, as we go through the trials of life that Paul talks about at the beginning of the letter, that what can I do begins to uh, fade and it wears out a little bit. And it's real bad news if it's up to us to live up to a standard, isn't it? And so our life's either going to communicate that or we're going to communicate some bad news followed by incomparably greater good news that it's what God has done. That's what we minister out of. And so how do you know? The question is, how do you know what kind of ministering you're doing? And this may be the first time you've ever heard you have a ministry, but you do. If you're part of the church, you have a ministry. And when you walk out these doors, I don't know about you, but I would want to know, what am I relying on? What am I relying on? And Paul, as we move through 2 Corinthians into chapter 2 and chapter 3, he gives a picture of four different places that show up in ministry that you can look at those and know, what am I relying on? And Lord, does something need to shift? Do I need to think about this differently? Do I need to process this differently? Do I need to rely less on me and more on you? The first picture he brings up, and, and he throws out a few pictures in, in rapid succession here in chapter two. The first picture <clears throat> excuse me, that he brings up is an open door. Now you've heard that phrase, right? I mean, isn't that part of our maybe our theology or our conversation? You, you, you've maybe said. It was just such an open door. And when we talk about open doors, we talk about something God did, right? And it is absolutely true. There are some things he arranges and the timing and the way he does it that it just nobody else could have done it. It's so clear it was him. But what Paul's really getting at when he talks about an open door is what? Opportunities. Opportunities, in other words, how do we encounter and how do we handle and how do we view the opportunities that we're given? Here's what here's what Paul says about an open door that he came across. Uh, this is chapter two, verse twelve. Now, when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, He opened a door. I still, this is puzzling. I still had no peace of mind. Because I did not find my brother Titus there. Now, that, that kind of takes apart our understanding of open doors. I mean, if you, if you talk in that language, you understand. The, the way we look at opportunities, we often think it, it just was so smooth. It just came together so perfectly. There was just perfect peace. And yet Paul goes, no, I went to the door that the Lord opened and I had no peace of mind. Because Paul was one who looked at every single open door, not as this really cool thing, unique thing that only happened to him, but he processed it with the fruits of the Spirit, that staying power that he knew he had with him. He looked within himself. He said, is there love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control? And he he looked within and he went, there's something missing. There's something missing about this. And so what he says next just is going to blow some of your minds. Because the way we look at open doors, we think you take every single one. And we almost close our grip around it and almost idolize that open door. Listen to what Paul said. Verse, thir- uh, verse 13, so I said goodbye. Wait, wait Paul, so, so God opened a door for you and you skipped it? What are you thinking? He said, So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. Now, if you're doing ministry and an opportunity comes along, or if you go into this week and an opportunity comes along, isn't it true that you're going to look at it and go, I've got to take advantage of this? And if I miss this, we're sunk. I mean, this was my Christian journey for years because somewhere along the way I picked up this idea that if you don't make exactly the right choices at exactly the right time, you're going to miss the boat. And and God is going to be done with you. You know what that is? That's a way of going through life that looks at oneself and says, "What can I do?" or "What have I failed to do?" And too often I've heard people say that because I missed that opportunity, I'm disqualified. God can't use me anymore. Yet when I look at what Paul has to say, Paul was weighing everything with the heart and against that fruit of the spirit. And there's something in Paul, and I think this is where, again, he pulls ahead of a lot of us. Paul looked at it and he went, you know what? God did open a door there, but God's big enough to put somebody through that door. And Paul recognized that there was a need to go back to a door that God had previously opened for him. In other words, remember what we said a few weeks ago? Yeah, the Holy Spirit is something, it's a power you have, but bigger than that, it's a power that has you. That even if you miss an open door, he's got you. That grace is so big that yes, you you have it, you embody it, but it has you, even when you miss an open door. But too often, you remember those teachers, and I'm going to pick on certain teachers right now. Remember those teachers that... I think they got into teaching just a to torture, to be honest, in my own experience. They'd give you this multiple choice test, and every answer is right. Those teachers are the worst, aren't they? Anyway, uh, yeah, they, they would give you this test that, that all the answers were right, and you had to pick what? The most right answer. Oh, it's terrible. And this is what we, we put on God. We say, well, God's just a, a teacher that is just waiting to get me. If I don't make the right choice, I'm sunk. You know what that is? That's walking through life saying, look what I can do, or it's up to what I can do or what I can't do. But Paul says, no, no, no. When you get that open door opportunity, don't forget the abundance of what he's given, that there is always an open door. When Paul talked about open doors, It wasn't just things worked out for me or anything like that. Paul always referred to open doors here and in his letter to the Colossians is an opportunity to share the gospel. And everywhere you go, there's an opportunity to share what Jesus did right there at the cross. And sometimes it's with a new group of people, like he was looking at in Troas, and sometimes it's going back. In this case, he was going back, and he was checking on the Corinthians after he wrote this scathing first letter to them. Well, he holds up another picture. He says, Not just open doors, not just opportunities, but but there's another area where you'll know how you're going through it, how you're ministering to people. And he uses this phrase of a procession or a parade. And what he's really getting at when you think about a parade is glory. Is glory. Listen to what Paul says. Uh, verse 14, he says, but thanks be to God. This is after he's, he, he acknowledges he didn't go through the door God opened. But thanks be to God. In other words, he's still got me. But thanks be to God who always leads us. Even when we miss an opportunity. Even when we move on from an opportunity. Always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession. Now something ought to jump out here. Because in the culture you and I walk in, what, who... Who's a parade for? It's for the victor, right? And when you imagine a parade, isn't there something in all of us that we want, to, we want the parade to be for us? We want to be the victor, but, but that's not what Paul says here. Paul says, but thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's. Who's the victor? Christ's triumphal procession. Now, Paul was referring to something very specific because in Rome, when a commander or a general had a victory in a foreign land, what they would often do is they would bring home whatever they gained in war. And so you'd have this, this parade set up through the streets. And first you'd have the military coming through and everybody's applauding and cheering them. And then behind that, the spoils of war, whatever they collected from um, the enemy's treasury. And they would go set this and, and dedicate this to, to the, this god Jupiter, this god of, of victory to them. But then behind them came the captives. Those that they they brought back, that they didn't kill in battle, they would bring them back. And these captives would be paraded behind the spoils of war and behind them, really the, the commander or the general, whoever led them to victory. And what would often happen is these captives would be led to their deaths. They would be executed publicly in front of everyone. And so you read this and you go, okay, what, Paul? So you're equating yourself not with the victor, not with that thing that culture for thousands and thousands and thousands of years we've put up on a pedestal. Paul says, no, no, I am a captive to the one who conquered me. But Paul knew the good news was this, that it wasn't about what Paul could do or what Paul didn't do. It's that he had a victor who rather than Paul be put to death, he had a victor who was put to death for him. And who was put to death for you and for me. And so it raises a question. You know, we have open door opportunities. But then there's the parade of glory. And inside the heart of every single one of us is something that wants glory. When you and I go out the door today, as soon as we leave here. And it might even be sitting in the heart right now. In fact, it is. Because that's what sin does to us. There is something in us that wants glory and we will stop at nothing to get at it. Here's the problem. That's a life that says it's all about what you can do or what you haven't done. Or the alternative is what Paul said. Or we can point at what God has given his grace to us. I will never forget years ago after after saying no to working with junior hires for three years because I just it, it was just no. I'm just not doing it. I'm not working with junior hires. And after a year of working with junior hires and suddenly realizing this was exactly where I was supposed to be, just, it just so lined up with some passions and some, uh, just some calling inside of me that I just it really hit a deep place. Well, every single year, like, like tonight actually, um, we'd graduate the eighth graders up into the high school group. And we would do that before the summer hit so they could spend the summer getting to know those that they were going to be in high school with in the fall. And I remember we graduated up this group of eighth graders. And then we would go, my wife and I would go to um, her parents' house for dinner after youth group. And we graduate up this group of, of eighth grade students that just, I mean, just God used them in my life. I, I feel like more than he ever used me in their lives as I look back. And I remember getting to their house to dinner and just being so, so upset. And Kara's dad, I'll never forget what he asked me. He said, you doing all right? I was like, no, this is like, I just, I'm going to miss these guys so much. And I'm not going to see them as much and, and, and be able to be involved in their lives as much. And he, he asked this question. I, I mean, I just thought, Dana, you might as well have just poured salt in the wound. But it was a question I needed to hear. And it's a question we all need to hear. He said, Nathan who do their hearts belong to? And I went, why do we even come to dinner? You know, <laughs> but it's exactly what I needed to hear. And it's exactly what every single one of us needs to hear because when it comes to the glory that, is, that is, is so part of ministry, what we have to be able to ask ourselves is who is this really about? Whose glory is this really about? Because if it's about mine, then you know what my ministry says? It's about what you can do. You know what that is? It's the law. That's the law that you hear about all through the Old Testament. Just live up to the law. Live up to the perfect standard. But if it's about his glory, then you know what? You can walk out these doors and know you have a ministry that's all about what God has given because the ultimate glory he has given you and me happened right there. Right there at the cross. Well, Paul moves into a third area where we can really discover, (laughs) what's the emphasis for me? What's going on in my heart? And he he uses the term aroma, aroma. Listen to what he says. And it's tied to to what we just read. But thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. Now, when I read that as a teenager, I just giggled. I was like, he uses us to spread aroma. That's, that's funny. And junior hires would laugh at that too, but you're clearly all more mature than that. So anyway, but just literally, don't you want to smell good? Yeah, we all want to walk out the door and smell good. Nobody walks out and goes, "I hope I, just, I hope I'm just putrid to somebody that I encounter today but it's going to happen. It's going to happen because as you pay attention to what Paul says as he goes on, he says this, for we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one, we are an aroma that brings death. To the other, an aroma that brings life. And who is equal to such a task? And we'll get to the answer to that question in a moment here. But did you catch the division there? To some people, Paul says, we're an aroma that brings, we're the aroma that brings death. And to the other, an aroma that brings life. And what Paul's getting at here after he's gotten to opportunities and he's gotten to glory, now he's saying, now it's time to pay attention to the effect of our ministry. What is the effect of this ministry? And I got to be honest I've had far more days than not that I go out the door and I want the effect to be pleasant. And I want it to be accepted. And I want it to be approved of. I I want it to be well-received across the board. But Paul says, you know what? The aroma of the gospel, some people are going to be absolutely repelled by it. Absolutely repelled. And if you and I walk out these doors and everything is about what can I do or what have I not done, You know what? We're going to compromise. We're going to compromise in order to smell good and be acceptable to everyone, which everyone in here knows is impossible anyway. Let me maybe get at at something here. I want you to... uh, I'm going to throw out a scent to you guys that's very polarizing, okay? And and I hear some people, um, when, when they hear about this scent, they just go, Oh, the best And then others are like, that is, I I can't handle it. Like, it makes me want to throw up every time I smell it. Ready? I want you to raise your hand if you were absolutely repelled by gasoline. Gasoline. See, we've got a few in here. Yeah. And then there are others of us. Like me this morning. Like, if this sermon's not making sense right now, it's because I got gas this morning. I got gasoline. And I I could just stand there and smell it all the time. Just, Just let it run. Let it overflow. It smells so good. And I, you get a little dizzy, right? How many of you love the smell of gasoline? All right, there it is. See, you see? Okay, nail polish, nail polish, uh, repelled by it. Yeah, it's putrid. It's just absolutely disgusting. I have three ladies in my home, okay. And actually, Lincoln. Some days, some days, Lincoln. All right. <laughs> and then some of you can do it like it's no big deal. I mean, when they start, it's cotton balls in my nose, a clothespin on my nose. I got to leave. I just got to leave. So anyway, there is a fragrance that you put off when you you decide to follow Jesus and carry his gospel message to the world. I I recently read about, many of you have seen the, the Christian movie Facing the Giants. And this movie, it was fascinating to read about the rating that it got, because it was actually rated PG. And when I heard that, I thought, okay, maybe there are some intense scenes or something like that, just not suitable for for real young ones. Do you want to know why it was given a PG rating? There was too much Christianity in it for kids. So you know what that is? That's an aroma that this culture does not like. Because you and I walk in a culture that says, what can you do? Or what have you failed to do? And it's bad news. It's just the worst possible news for us. And so you're called to a message. This is not what can you do. What has God given? It's a message of grace. Finally, Paul holds up a fourth image. And after talking about opportunities and glory and effects, now he's going to talk about the efficiency in the success of ministry. How do you measure that? And here's what he has to say. It has to do with a letter of commendation. He says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? In other words, a minute ago when he said, who is up to such a task, it's rhetorical. He's saying we are because of what Christ did for us. We are up to being that aroma. But he begins chapter 3 with saying, so are are we bragging about ourselves? Are we beginning to commend ourselves and pat ourselves on the back? Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? And the implication is we don't need that because of what he says next. He says, you, the Corinthians, you yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. In other words, if people want to know what your ministry is about, all they have to do is look at the fruit that it produces in those that are part of it, in those that God brings into it. He says, you show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Let me ask you, what speaks to your success? How do you measure your success? I mean, is it letters after your name on a business card? Is it a bank account balance? Is it, especially this happens a lot in in the church and organizational world. Is it attendance? Is it finances? Is it years of service? Listen, all those things, all those metrics can tell us some things. But Paul's getting at something. If you want to know, if you want to know about the efficiency and the effectiveness and the success of your ministry, it's in the fruit produced in those that God brings into that ministry. He goes on, such confidence we have through Christ before God. Not what I've done. Through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. See, if my competency and if your competency comes from what you've done or what you've failed to do, that is an exhausting standard to keep up. And it's a standard that you have to know. Jesus did not abolish, but he fulfilled right there at the cross. So why continue doing it? If he fulfilled it, if that's true, why operate in a way that says, oh, what have I done? What what can I do? What have I failed to do? Maybe the greatest quote that I was given in all our years at youth ministry was somebody who said to me, Nathan, the success of a youth ministry... And this would go for for whether you're part of a formal ministry in the church or you just walk out these doors and you you encounter people all week long. The success of what God is doing through us is measured, here's what they said, not by how many are in the room, but by how those in the room are doing 10 years down the road and 20 years down the road and 30 and 40 and 50 years down the road. Did you catch that? See, it's, it's real easy to start counting. You go, oh, we're doing pretty good. And yet I will never forget that quote. How are they doing down the road? Because this is a journey. This is a walk throughout this life, isn't it? Maybe the greatest gift I've been given recently was one of those in the room years ago reached out to have breakfast the other day. And you want to know what jumped out to me more than anything? I mean, it wasn't the memories. There were some memories that were really, really fun and exciting and, and some adrenaline producing mountaintop moments like we like to point at. But it was to hear him process, and he doesn't even, he may not even realize he said it. It was to hear him process everything through the lens of the grace of God upon his life. And I pray, I pray, I pray that every single person in here gets that same opportunity that your competence wouldn't be because you can point at anything that you've done, but because of what he already did right there at the cross, at the empty tomb. Now, four pictures there. And when I spent a good chunk of this week yelling at Paul because I went, how many, how many different metaphors are you going to come up with here, Paul? But it represents some things. Open doors, opportunities, a parade, glory, an aroma, the effect of ministry, Finally, a letter of recommendation: the success of ministry. In each of those areas, you know what you're going to discover? My life is either going to shout what I've done, or it's going to whisper what God has done. Now, if ever there were a life, there was just one life that I just kept coming to mind and coming to mind as I was reading this passage from Paul the last couple of weeks. And it was a man named Jacob. Now, Jacob is, is found, uh, not over here, Jacob, sorry, Jacob, um, but Jacob is found in the book of Genesis, and Jacob, honestly, for, for a good chunk of his early life, was a deceiver. He just deceived everybody. You know, he manipulated his brother out of the birthright. It was just one thing after another. You read it, and you just go, you're a liar, Jacob. I'm yelling at the Bible right now. Yeah, you're a liar. You know, you've just tricked everybody throughout your entire life into giving you something, well, one day, he's on his way to reunite with his brother Esau that he hasn't seen in a long, long time. And he finally, he gets all his belongings and his family across this stream. And he's about to cross the stream, and when we read this account in Genesis 32. It says there was a man there, a man there that represented God, an angel of God, and God himself. And it says Jacob and the man wrestled all night. They wrestled all night. And finally, finally, this man... This God, you know what he did? He touched Jacob's socket of his hip. And Jacob came out of that encounter limping, limping. Now you think, okay, what's the big deal about that? From that day forward, Jacob was a different person. From that day forward, now finally, Jacob realized it is far better to limp for God than run without him. Because that's a life that says, listen, he could have destroyed me, but instead he gave me grace. He could have taken me out, but instead he gave me grace. And as you read of Jacob's life going forward, it's not smooth. He's not perfect, but he has a ministry. Things happen through his life. So I bring all that up because as you think through, as you think through the trials you're going through, you know what's so interesting is the structure of this letter. You want to know where your ministry begins? Paul started with trials and the comfort we receive in our trials. That's where God starts your ministry. And there's something that has to happen. God has to take our shout away. And God has to take away this message in us that says, look what I can do. So that we can turn and we can begin to whisper to people in a way that dignifies and honors the heart. But look what he's done. Look what God has done. See, those trials have a way of changing the way we talk. Our verbs change. The subject of our verbs change. And it's not I did this and I failed to do that and I did this and I failed to do that. The verb and the subject change to God did. God did. God showed up. God did this. You begin to talk differently. The other thing trials do is they begin to take away your energy and your strength to shout. Because honestly, if we're going to minister to people, it's, it's kind of hard to minister shouting at people, isn't it? And when you're walking through the trial, don't we often, we can serve every bit of energy, every bit of strength for what needs to be done. And so that's what a trial does. And that's where a ministry begins. He changes the way we talk, and then he changes the way we talk. And there's something about whispering You know what it does? It draws people closer. Because when you can't quite hear what somebody's saying, but you really want to know what they're saying, and they're whispering, you get a little closer. You know what that is? That's a ministry. That's a ministry. We'll pick up there next week as the worship team comes back up. Heavenly Father. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this word that honestly, I know I personally have overlooked um, so many times. And yet, thank you for four pictures Paul gave us, four pictures of an open door, of a parade, of an aroma, of a letter that represent the opportunities, the, the glory, the effects, and the success that every single one of us faces down every single day. And Heavenly Father, I pray that for every single person in here, that Lord, you would, you would illuminate to us through your word, with your spirit, would you illuminate to us where we've, we've leaned on and depended on a life of competency and what I can do? And Lord, we pray. We pray that as only you can, you'd begin to, as you say in your words, sanctify and transform and shift us into a way of walking through this world and encountering people that says not what I can do, but what God has already done. Lord, we thank you for what you've already done at the cross. Lord, move us from a shout to a whisper so that we can minister to those you bring to us and put in our path. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.